Pints with Jack, Season 3, Episode 50, After Hours with Douglas Gresham. Good morning. Welcome to Pints with Jack, a podcast where two enthusiastic C.S. Lewis amateurs get together, share a beverage, and discuss a work of C.S. Lewis. This season, we read Till We Have Faces. Last week, I interviewed Dr. Diana Glyer, whom David and I met at the conference in North Carolina last year. Today, I am so excited to be speaking to someone else we met there, C.S. Lewis's stepson, Douglas Gresham. Douglas is an American-British stage and voiceover actor, biographer, film producer, and executive record producer. He's written an autobiography called Lenten Lands, which chronicles his early life. He's also written a book titled Jack's Life about his stepfather, C.S. Lewis. Further, he is one of two sons of Joy Davidman, whom we have learned a lot about from Patty Callahan and discussed on many different occasions on the podcast. Douglas Gresham, welcome to Pints with Jack. Well, thank you. It's good, it's good to be with you. So when we start this, um, I always have a drink of the week, and uh, if you don't, that's totally fine, but uh, interviewing you, I was so excited. I'm drinking my favorite drink, Macallan 12. I love scotch. And we also start with a quote of a week, which I have taken from your book, Lenten Lands. I absolutely love this quote. I'm beginning to realize that every point in one's life at which one loses everything is far more a beginning than an end. For one has lost merely the past, and one has yet to gain the future in eternity itself. I said it makes sense to me anyway. <laughs> I'm hoping I wanted to do this one because reading Lenten Lands, again, you have such an incredible life with so many experiences, and that's led to a lot of wisdom and hearing your interviews. And so I hope the listeners, as you guys hear that, you realize you're in for a treat with, uh, as we go through and learn more about Douglas's life. But right before jumping into this, I want to do a quick toast to one of our top Patreon sub- subscribers and supporters, Chris Betts. Chris, we can't say thank you enough for your support of our ministry. We raise a glass that any loss in life may not be an end, but the beginning of so much more yet to be gained. Cheers. So I would love to start. You had a beautiful, in many ways, but also a lot of struggle in your childhood, and reading Lenten Lands, you really went into that. And so can you give us some background on the members of your family, your father, your mother, your brother, yourself? Yeah, it's uh, interesting enough. What, what is most important about it is not even in Lenten Lands. My father, to start with, came back from the Spanish Civil War with a bad case of PTSD. Uh, he had nightmares at night and so forth. And alcoholism and tuberculosis all at once. So he was in a pretty poor state when he met my mother and they got married. And even when I was growing up, uh, up until I was about seven, I think it was, yeah, halfway through, no, nearly eight, um, there were times when Dad would roar around the house, just almost insane. Um, But other times when he was the most loving man you could meet. And you knew that if now I would have known, but we could know now that what I was seeing was PTSD tearing him apart and his alcoholism also contributing to that. But he was, in fact, a very loving father. And I went through this process, I suppose, of losing my father to divorce um, when I was not quite seven, not quite eight years old. I was seven years old. 
and then going over to England where everything else went haywire at different times. But my dad was a, was a very fine man in many ways, and there were many people who loved him to bits. Um, if you could get to my dad, he could tell you funny stories. He would even tell you some of the things he did in, in Spain. Uh, we, have a, we have in this family to this day uh, a salad dressing, um, which is called the Gresham dressing, because my father had an affair with a, with a Spanish lady while he was over there, and she invented this salad dressing and named it after him. It's the Gresham dressing. So it still goes on in my family to this day. Um, but it, he, he came back a different man from the man who went there, and I think that was a big problem. Uh, he eventually married my mother, and I think that he made a, well, he didn't make a mistake, and I was born, so he did something good. <laughs> but, but he made a mistake, I think, in terms of marriage, because she was far more intelligent than he was. I mean, he was pretty bright, don't let me get me wrong, but my mother was right up there with the top end. Um, there are very few people in the world I've ever met, in fact, only two people in the world I've ever met with her kind of intellect and her kind of intelligence. So that made things a bit difficult for both of them at times, uh, even though they did love each other dearly. Uh, so life was, in some ways, hectic, in some ways, wonderful. I mean, when my dad gave a birthday party for me, he did a wonderful job with it because he was also a magician and did all those sort of magic tricks. And um, at other times, he was, he was rather dangerous to be around. But the, the real problem I had at that time, I haven't mentioned at all in Lenten Lands because the, the guy was still alive. I, have a, I had an elder brother, um, David, David Lindsay Gresham. And from my youngest days, in fact, one of my earliest memories that won't, won't leave my head, that just simply will, will not go away, was a time when we were taken out to a swimming hole in a field near our house. And um, I can remember and I can still see it in my eyes to this very day. I was looking upwards looking through, oddly enough, golden things, specks in water flowing past my face and seeing the sky up there as well and realizing that I was being held under the water by my brother standing on my chest. And I figured out that if I didn't do something pretty quickly, I was going to die, even though I was only about, what, five years old, four or five years old at the time. And I threw my legs behind his shoulders and just crashed him down into the water, leapt up and ran away. Now, it's been very difficult throughout my whole life to like swimming as a result of that. Um, I, I, I try to enjoy it, but it doesn't last long, you know. I start looking around, start looking around for things to fall on me, you know. Um, but that, that's because, and I didn't find out till many years later, when our uncle in, in New York diagnosed, he was a, a very well-known psychiatrist at the time, and a very effective one. And my brother went to stay with him for a while because my brother had decided to become Jewish. Uh, rather than anything else. And he tried just about everything else before that and then went back to trying things again later. But that's another story. But anyway, I, myself and my family went over to, to, uh, for me to show them around the world. In fact, we did a round-the-world trip. And the kids were quite young. But um, my uncle took me to one side and said, Doc, look, I, I have to tell you that while your brother was here, I'd asked him how he got on. You know, while he was here, I um, took the trouble of diagnosing him carefully. And he is undoubtedly a dangerous, paranoid psychoph psychophrenic. So I lived most of my young life, probably up until I was about 12, um, running away from my brother or whatever. And then, of course, I learned to fight pretty quick, pretty fast and pretty hard. And uh, the, la the most dangerous thing I think he ever did, I walked out of the back door of the kilns. Do you, have you been to the kilns? 
I have not. Uh, okay, well, it has a door which leads out uh, to the driveway outside, the back door, it comes out of the kitchen. I walked out of there and felt myself being splashed suddenly with gasoline. And my brother was standing there striking a match trying to throw it at me. Wow. I let him have a savate kick which nearly broke his wrist and I took off very, very quickly. But that was, I think, the most dangerous thing, the closest he ever got to killing me. But he was a dangerous person, a dangerous individual. And in later years, I made a point of not allowing my wife to meet him and never allowing my kids anywhere near him. And um, it turned out much later that he had, he had managed to marry a wife, a very, very lovely person, and sired two children, both of whom um, are, are great kids. They're, they're very nice boys. How they managed to be such good kids when they were brought up by my brother, I've no idea. Except, of course, that the wife's brother, his, her brother, decided to help these kids because he could see what was happening. But anyhow, um, David eventually was um, put into a psychiatric institute in, in, in Switzerland. And he had to be locked in a, in a locked environment uh, because he was assaulting all the guards and all the um, cleaning ladies and people like that. So I lived my life for a long time with him in the house. And Warney, my uncle Warney, was Jack's brother, absolutely couldn't stand him at all, stayed well away from him. Jack did everything he could to help him, everything wow. he could. And he kept on doing that until he finally died, trying to help David. And David refused to get him. I mean, when, when Uncle Hank said, Uncle Howard, sorry, Uncle Howard said to David, look, you, know, you are ill, and, and there is treatment for it. David refused any treatment and refused to listen to him. So that was a, that was a huge part of my life that I left out of, of Lenten Lands because David was still alive. And the weirdest thing about it was that when he died, I wept for him. Mm -hmm. I'd run away from him most of my life. But eventually he, he left us and went wherever he went. And I actually, I wept for him. And I, I, that, that took me by surprise that I still loved my brother, even despite all the things, the horrible things he'd done to me over all the years. And I'm, I, in, in the weirdest way, I'm so, so glad he's not here, but I miss him. <laughs> it's kind of daft when you think about it. Slightly crazy, but I guess that runs in the family. <laughs> so I, I'm probably going to have to revise that book and, and add more to it for one thing and, um, and, and tell the story of David. It's so sad, it really is. And hopefully hear some more of uh, the after Lenten lands because in the interviews, I mean, that's just an incredible part of your life too. Well, <laughs> yeah, uh, as I said, it, it's, it's not me who does these things. I mean, I, I didn't set out intend to lead an amazing, extraordinary, wild, wonderful, difficult, etc. life, um, which has been a lot of fun in many ways, by the way. And I married the most beautiful woman in the world, and we're still married. And we've been together, I think, for 56 or 57 years. Um, wow. So I, I, I never set out to do any of these things. In fact, the girl I married, the whole story there is just completely by God. Um, when, when I was a little kid and... and uh, Trying, always trying to avoid my brother, always running away, staying hidden, staying away from him, uh, for very good reasons, obviously. Um, I was lonely, horribly lonely. I mean, he was the only other person, only other kid around. And so I kind of invented an imaginary girlfriend, and I was only little at the time. And I sort of thought, well, this would be nice to have a little girl to play with. And later on, that did happen, in a sense, uh, with my um, stepsister, I suppose you'd call her. And my first stepsister and first cousin once removed, who <laughs> come from a real red, redneck family back then. But anyway, she's a lovely person. And she did come to stay with us. But getting back to what I was saying, anyway, I invented this little girl in my mind. I knew what she'd look like. I knew how she'd talk. I knew what she'd be interested in. 
And I did sort of imitation playing with her in you know, the woods and the fields and forests. And that nearly got me into real trouble too, in a sense. Um, <laughs> those woods had some strange and violent characters in them, like a large she-bear with a, with a cub on one occasion. <laughs> and I discovered that you can leap up a tree a lot faster than a bear can climb up it. <laughs> Anyhow, getting back to what I was saying. Anyway, I imagined this little girl, and as I grew older, she sort of automatically came along and grew older with me, this person in my head. And um, I was about... I suppose I'd have been 19 at the time or something like that, almost 20. And um, I was working on a farm called Chargat Manor in Somerset, to which I'd been sent because I wanted to go to agricultural college and learn to be a farmer. And the college insisted you have at least 18 months practical work or a bit more on farms before you could go to the college. So um, friends got together and they decided they should, I should go down and see these people and stay with them. And it was uh, a place called Chargat in Somerset, Chargat Manor. And it was owned by Sir Edward and Lady Mallet. Lovely, lovely people. And um, to start with, I was being completely idiotic and trying to get out of work if I could and so on. I suddenly realized this was the wrong thing to do. And the reason I realized it was simple. One day, Lady Mallet came into the breakfast room, fl you know, fluttering a piece of paper and said, oh, Doug, you're going to love this. Ma Mary's coming to stay. And I said, well, who's Mary? She said, well, that's our niece. She lives in London. She comes from Tasmania. I had never heard of Tasmania at that time. So I said, well, how old is she? And she said, oh, she's 21, I think. And I said, oh, well, she'd be too old for me. And Harry, their son, piped up and said, no, any, anyone, anybody with, with trousers on is good enough for Mary, you know. So, <laughs> so I thought, well, that's interesting. Anyhow, they sent us, uh, Lady Mallet sent us in the car down to Taunton, which is a big country town with a big railway station, to pick these girls, Mary and her friend who were coming to stay for a week, pick them up from the railway station and bring them back to the farm. So we get down there and we had our hair cut, haircuts and we went to the railway station and we was, it was freezing cold too and, and I was a smoker in those days and I was stealing Harry's cigarettes every five minutes and eventually this train thundered into the railway station came to a squealing stop and about 200 people started getting off the train and I saw a girl step down from the steps of that train and it was the girl I had been playing with since I was five years old and I knew immediately... Wow that that was the girl I had to marry. And I turned to Harry and I said, Harry, um, you see that girl over there? He said, which one? There's dozens of them. And I said, the, I said, the blonde one in the whatever it was, colored um, dress. And he said, yeah, well, what about her? And I said, that's the girl I'm going to marry. He said, don't be stupid. That's my cousin. <laughs> <laughs> so I started on the campaign and it took three years and three pro proposals for me to eventually persuade her to marry me. <laughs> And it's stuck, you know, we've, we've been married for, as I say, nearly 50-something years now, and don't regret a moment of it. And I loved that scene where you scrapped all of your last pretty much pennies together, bought her that gift, went to see her, and isn't that the time when she said yes? Uh, it was after that. What happened there was interesting. Again, I don't know, I can't remember what I wrote about it in, in Lent and Lands, but I spent every cent I had, not only with, with the present, which I sent off by mail to her, which is actually a lovely uh, four-leaf clover marcasite brooch, um, which cost me every cent I had almost. And I had just enough money probably to hitchhike and, 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 and get up to London to see her uh, on the day of her birthday. And Mary was meticulous about birthdays all her life. If someone was having a birthday, she'd make a cake and she'd do a big fuss for them and so on. So I thought, well, we'll have a great party, you know. So I get down to London. It was bitterly cold. It was in, it was in October, I think it was. Yeah, October is her birthday. I think it is anyway. 
And this particular time, it was, very, it was very frosty and very cold, which is unusual for that time of year, actually. And I got down there, and I'm walking, and I didn't have much money left at all. I'd hitchhiked most of the way from way up in the north. And um, there was a, what we call a barrow boy in, in England, and a lot of people don't understand what that means, but he's got a big sort of trolley thing on wheels, and he has whatever he's selling in it and walks around the streets and sells whatever it is. And this guy had fresh flowers, and I thought they must have come in from overseas somewhere because it wasn't, you know. But anyhow, he had some carnations, so I went over to him and I, and I said, um, how much are these carnations? And he told me the price, and I thought, well, I can't afford that. And I said, I'm sorry, I don't have much money. And he said, well, it's too cold for me to be out here, mate. Um, what can you come up with? You know? So anyway, we had a little bit of bargaining. Eventually, he let me have, um, I forget exactly how many, but it was 12 or 13. It was a special number anyway that he added to uh, very cheaply. And I had enough perhaps for a couple of sandwiches on the way back if I had to hitchhike back again. So anyhow, I grabbed these and I went down, walked down the street to um, the, the house. that was, She rented a little flat with, with several friends and um, rang the doorbell. And the door opened, and there was this handsome-looking young man I'd never seen before. And um, I said, I'm here for, for um, Meredith Conan Davies. And he said, uh, oh, she's inside. And come in. So I, I came in with him and couldn't see her in the drawing room, the sitting room, because she was sitting in a big back chair, one of those big chairs that was facing away from me. And he very quickly got his own girlfriend who was staying there, and that's why he was doing there, took her down to the kitchen to leave us in peace, which was a very nice thing to do. And I just eventually just realized that she was sitting in the chair. So I leaned over the chair and dropped the carnations in her lap. And she burst into floods of tears. And she couldn't stop. And it took me a long time to figure out what that was all about. And it turned out that no one in the entire world, including her whole family, except me, had remembered her birthday. And... Um, so I sort of thought, well, there's a chance here, you know, <laughs> after we got all quietened down and everything and gave her the flowers and told her her birthday present was on the way, it just hadn't got here yet. And um, for the third time, I asked her to marry me, and this time she said yes. Mm. I can't wait to, so I'll, I'll share with the listeners this story. There's an interview of Mary Gresham um, as well on YouTube that she shares her side, and she just breaks out crying because she says you were the first person she ever felt that loved her um, deeply. And still do. Yep. I got marooned short short time ago on my own island. In, I have an island offshore in the in the Coral Sea, and um, Mary and I had gone out there to visit our friends and our kids who live out there and grandkids and so forth. And we'd done that trip around and we'd had some wonderful times. And then it was time for Mary. Mary's, Mary's a very great gardener. She's a fabulous gardener. She loves growing vegetables and she grows all most of the vegetables we eat, in fact. And um, she said she wanted to go home about three weeks earlier than I was planning to, because she had to get all the stuff harvested and, and, you know, boil it a bit and put it in the freezer and all the sorts of things that women have to do. And not all women, but um, I do it too. As a matter of fact, I'm a cook myself as well. But anyhow, um, so I said, okay, well, you go home, you know, three weeks earlier and I'll stay on for three weeks on the island and see if I can catch some big fish and have some fun and explore the place a bit more. It's a jungle, basically, that island, with a lovely house on it that we built or we sort of rebuilt. Anyhow, so she agreed to that. And when we came over here, we saw everybody and did what we had to do. And even one of my goddaughters from America showed up as it happened. It was great. So anyhow, um, then Mary got on the plane and went home. And then the COVID-19 happened. Mm. And I couldn't get off the island. And then I was on the island for about two and a half months with the caretaker looking after me. I mean, Pete, Pete was terrific. He looked after me very well. 
But um, he has his own little house up the hill a bit uh, on the island, which we also built. And I suddenly realized that for the first time in many, well, ever really, I was, I was 9,880 miles away from Mary. Wow. And it was, I was empty. There's nobody to turn to, nobody, nobody to bitch at to start with if I was feeling that way, <laughs> and nobody to be nice to and, and nobody to cuddle. And it, it nearly drove me mad. It came very close to driving me crazy because I just realized that this is someone I really did not want to be without. And we're both getting on, so sooner or later it's going to happen. But I didn't want it to happen then, and, and, and I didn't want it to happen when she was still alive anyway, and I was still alive. It, it was just, it all mixed up in my mind, and I went kind of completely crackers for a while. And Pete was worried about me, the caretaker. He's a terrific guy, actually. He's been wonderful. And then my, uh, obviously behind my back, and I didn't know this, my sons were chatting about what the heck can we do for Dad, you know, because he's in a difficult situation. And eventually Dig, Dig is his nickname, Tim's nickname. He uh, has a place in uh, Mittagong, south of Sydney. And he rang me and said, look, get on a plane, come down and stay with us for a few weeks, and we'll have a lot of fun. And I realized that I'd better get get off the island and get down there because I was going crazy. And so I did. I flew down and Dig came and collect me and then his wife took over because he had to go and do some work and then he, he specialises in distributing medical machinery and importing it. So anyhow, uh, they took me to their home. They have a lovely old granny flat, as we call it in England. I don't know what you call it in America, but it's an apartment set aside for the old fellas, you know, <laughs> of, which yep. I, of which I now qualify for. <laughs> so I was kind of in, 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 a, in a way in quarantine there for a while. And um, eventually I did, did find out that the flight started flying again and I got on an Emirates flight from um, Sydney to Dubai and Dubai uh, to London. Um, and from London I, I rented a car and went down to the Isle of Wight, which is where I also have property that I'm renovating at the moment. So I was on the Isle of Wight in one of the cottages that we had there, uh, which was livable in. And um, I still miss Mary horribly, even though there were people around, you know, that I liked. And in the end, after three weeks there, um, I was given a repatriation flight by the Maltese government to come back, which I did. And went again into quarantine deliberately 14 days here to make sure I wasn't passing anything on to anybody. So I don't know why I'm telling you this, but it seems kind of interesting to me. Well, I love it because it's a testament to uh, your, your romantic pursuit 56 years ago or 57, as you said, one of those two. And um 56 years later, you still have that deep love, and that's just inspiring to hear. I, I, if, if, any, if she dies before me, I'm going to be in real trouble, I can tell you that right now. <laughs> and I think, I hope, in a sense, that it won't be as bad if I die before she does. I, don't, I hope that she won't feel as badly as I will. But, um, yeah, it's just one of the things that happens in our lives, you know? Mm -hmm. Now I'm back here and, and loving being here, which is terrific. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> A little bit about your mother. So in your, your, before you had moved to England, so when did your mom, your mother first come across the, the works of C.S. Lewis and how did that impact her? Because it transformed, it brought her more to Christianity and eventually, obviously, to England. So can you talk a little bit about that? Well, start, to start with, my mother was a very honest person. Hmm. And nobody who is really honest, even if they're an atheist, can pick up those books, particularly the one that she read, and read it and not be influenced by it. Either they have to be stupid or they have to be dishonest with, dis dishonest with themselves. You can't do it. Um, the book is brilliantly written and it worked very well for her, but I can tell you exactly how she got hold of it. We had a friend who lived out in the sticks somewhere 
And for the moment, his name escapes me, but then I'm old, so I've got to write to that. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, uh, he, he suggested that Mary should read this book. He might have even sent her a copy, uh, read the book and sent it off to her. And um, she read it, and being a very intelligent and fairly sna uh, snappy person, she had some queries, some questions. So she went back to, oh, God, I can't even remember his name. It's crazy, but it'll come back to me. Um, to, to tell him that she, she wanted some answers to these. And he said, well, don't ask me. Ask Lewis himself. He always answers his mail. So he gave her Jack's address in Oxford. And I expect it with some reluctance and perhaps a little bit of fear at the edge of things, she wrote him a letter. Now, Jack always answered every letter he got unless it was from an obvious lunatic. And he would do it, handwrite it with a, with a pen, a dip pen, dip it in the ink and, you know. Anyhow, she, she got this letter back from him explaining why she was wrong about all of her criticisms, but very, but very nicely done, you know. And that started a correspondence that went on until her, well, even when he was in, Oxford, in Cambridge and she was in Oxford, it went on through that too. So it, it went on right till her death. Um, and they, they, of course, she went over, when she realized, she went over to England to start with, before that, uh, yeah, but after that happened actually, just after. Um, because um, my mother's first cousin, Renee, was fleeing from her uh, drunken and also PTSD-damaged uh, individual from the Second World War. And uh, she fled and went to, our, went to my mother's, well, my grandparents, her parents, uh, for solace and, and as if they could put her up for a while. And they said, look, the first person your husband's going to look, first place your husband's going to look is right here with us because he knows this is where you'll go. Why don't you go upstate to... Bill and Joy's place, and stay with them for a while, because he'll never know to look for you there. So she did. And in the time that she was with us, my mother thought, well, this is great. I've got an opportunity to go to England and get a publisher for my book that was uh, Smoke on the Mountain, and, um, and just, you know, have fun as well, isn't it? Explore, explore a bit of England, I've always wanted to. She had been very ill, and her doctor had recommended that she get away for a while. So she had jaundice very badly for quite a long time. So off she went, and um, she actually managed to meet C.S. Lewis. And the, the sort of coagulation of the two intellects must have started to happen at that point. I mean, when she met him, he was in a, in a hotel restaurant waiting for her with his brother, Major Warren Lewis, or Warney as we called him. And they sat down and had a, a, a good intellectual conversation with a lot of fun. And I think... From that point on, they were both doomed to be married, if you'll excuse the expression. <laughs> but um, it, it took a while. It took a while. It went on for a few years. And eventually, um, Jack and my mother did get married. And first of all, though, um, there's a lot of nonsense talked about the fact that my mother was told by the uh, people who have the influences in um, England that she was going to have to leave. The government were going to kick her out because she had no right to be there. She was an American, two American boys with her and so on. And Jack must have come to the realization, deep within himself, that he didn't want her to go. So he suggested that they go down to a registry office and get a registered marriage done there. Then there would be legally husband and wife, and the government had already made evidence that if you were married to an English subject, British subject, you could stay. And people have told you know, have said that, oh, he deceived the government. Nothing of the sort. 
This was a well-known, perfectly acceptable method of getting your wife to stay with you in the, in the country. So they got married and they didn't live together. They were still friends, parted, but it was just a marriage in order to let her stay in England and myself and my brother. So that was fine. And Jack would come and visit us in our little house in Headington after we'd moved from London up to Headington, Oxford. And um, I got to know him much better, of course. And David was, was never about. He, was, <laughs> he shied away from anything like that. Uh, he didn't want to know anybody. He hated England. He hated everybody in it, etc. He hated everybody and everything, basically. Mm. So in the end, though, what happened was we were at school in Dane Court in Perford near Woking in Surrey. And we got this letter which said that we, when, we, we should, when we go home for the holidays, we should not go back to our Headington house. We should go to the Kilns in Kiln Lane, which is a place I absolutely adored because it had woods and it had a lake and all that sort of thing. And my brother wasn't particularly pleased, though. But anyway, so we went there because our mother had broken her leg, which is what they told us, which is true. She had. Um, but they didn't tell us that it was eaten away, the bone was eaten away by cancer. So Jack did something which for him must have been incredibly painful and difficult because he lost his mother to cancer when he was about nine, I think. We were taken to the... Um, we walked away to the hospital where she was. And Jack took us into a, a, a sort of little side room and told us that, in fact, our mother had broken her leg. Nobody had lied to us. But it was because she was riddled with terminal cancer. Mm. And I was at that time 10 years old. And it hit me like a sledgehammer. Anyway, David had been told to show me the way home after we visited our mother. And we went in to visit my mother and she looked absolutely terrible. Frighteningly terrible. And um, she was at death's door then, even. And David had been told to show me the way back to the kilns. But as soon as the door was open, he was gone like a flash, vanished. So I tried my, my way, 10 years old, walking through all of these streets and places to get back to the kilns. And I was realizing, as I got closer to places I could recognize, that I was alone. I mean, really alone. I had no father. I had no mother. I had a brother who was crazy. I had nobody to turn to. Nobody at all. Mm. And I came to the cinder-strewn path that led down into the churchyard of Holy Trinity Church in Headington Quarry. And as you came to the, to the churchyard, there's a wrought iron gate in the, in the wall there. You open the gate and you walk in. As I opened the gate and walked through, I walked out of this world. Suddenly... Every leaf on every tree was glowing with its own light. It was, it, the, the, the grass in the, in, the, in, the, in the graveyard was blindingly light. Everything in it, the, the flowers were just super real. And I was shocked initially. And then I suddenly became aware of a hugely, a hugely good presence in the churchyard. Amazingly good person who was sorrowing for me because I was so upset. And in my, inside my head, this person said, look, if you really, really don't believe you can make it without your mother, I can fix it. All you have to do is ask. That's a perfectly logical thing. Absolutely, there's nothing illogical about it at all. But it shocked me that this person whom I couldn't see, but I knew was there and was... Obviously, the person for whom all of this glow had, uh, from whom all this glow had originated. So I went inside the church, which doors were kept open in those days, and I knelt at the altar rail, and I prayed with every fiber of my little 10-year-old being that my mother be allowed to live, because I really didn't think I could make it without her. I didn't know anybody to start with. 
And he said, okay, it's fixed. Go on home, be at peace. But don't tell anybody for the moment. I don't know why I was not supposed to tell anybody, but I, I took it on board. And I walked on through this fabulous, fabulous existence in the churchyard until I got to the wrought iron gate at the other end, which I had to walk out of, and I'd be on my way back to the kilns. And I lifted the latch, walked through it, and stepped out of that fabulous environment into the shoddy, shabby land world in which we live. And my mother went into a remission two days later. Wow. The, the remission was for about four yes, years, correct? Yes, it lasted about four years. I had the same experience at the end of that four years when I was told again that my mother was dying. Uh, but then I was 14 rather than, rather than 10. And there's a huge difference between a 10-year-old child and a 14-year-old child. And once again, I was walking back from the same hospital, walking through the same churchyard, and blang, it all blew up again into this fabulous existence, which is impossible to really describe, to be honest. And he was there again. And he said, look, if you really can't make it, I can do it again. But then I thought it would be a little bit presumptuous to ask for the same miracle twice. And all I could think of to say was, your will be done. And I walked out of the churchyard, and my mother died about four days later. Wow. Some of the most profound words, thy will be done. Mm. That's all you can use in this sort of situation. So what, those four years when Lewis and um, your mother Joy were able to spend that time together when she was in remission, what was the marriage like um, from their, their interaction or relationship? They absolutely loved each other to bits. There was no doubt about that at all. Even for someone who was only 14, as I say, when, when, when she died. But it was just, it was the most exceptional marriage in some ways and the most beautiful marriage in others. They used to play Scrabble, for example. Just to show you what their minds were like. Only they couldn't play it in an ordinary way because both of them had, had superior minds. So what they did is they took two Crabble sets and took the, the letter tiles out of one and to the other, and then they would allow all known languages, factual or fictional, and they would play Scrabble against each other. And they would cover the whole board. There might be two or three empty spaces at the end of it, but that was about all. And there was one occasion when um, Jack had put down something that my mother challenged, which is part of the rules of Scrabble, you can challenge. And she didn't believe it was a real word. She thought he'd made it up. Of course, they did play these tricks on each other all the time. So, so um, they asked me. I said, what do you think, Doug? And I said, well, don't ask me. I don't know anything about this. I'll tell you what, I'll get Warney and he'll know. So I toddled down to Warney's office and brought him up there. Oh, what's the trouble, chaps? You know? and, um, and he sort of thought about it for a few minutes. And then he penalized Jack, first of all, for cheating. And then he penalized my mother for crowing over it when she'd found him out. <laughs> oh, I love, I love Warney already. It, just, it, just, it was just an amazing, the marriage was amazing. The whole household was amazing. We all knew that my mother was not going to live a very long time. Um, we all knew it. We dreaded the time. I mean, Warney loved my mother as much as Jack did, but in a very different way, of course. She was the sister he'd longed for all his life and never had. And in fact, when, when she died, he went straight to Ireland on a... On a, on a binge of drinking because he was an alcoholic but he was a great man um, but they just became I mean they had some wonderful experiences in that part of the marriage I, I, and I had some wonderful experiences too one time my mother and Jack were walking and by this time she could walk again walking up a steep slope into the woods behind the kilns and um, I was following them toddling along behind and I would have been probably you know, 15 at that time maybe 16 and my mother was carrying a little 
three-bore shotgun, which he had bought to chase away the trespassers who used to come into the place. I mean, we had, a, we had no fence along the edge of it at one stage, and my mother said, Jack, we've got to put a fence up there and stop these people from coming in. They're destroying the place. Jack says, it's no good, my dear. If we, if we build a fence, they'll only, they'll only cut the wire and steal it. She said, well, if we build a fence, they cut the wire and steal it, I'll buy a shotgun. They did, and she did. So she was wandering up the hill, and of course, every now and again, she'd blast a, a few pellets. I mean, it was a tiny little cartridge about an inch long. And it would blast pellets up into the trees and patter, 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 and people would run for their lives, thinking they were being about to be murdered or something. <laughs> but you couldn't kill anybody with this thing unless you held it right up to them and pulled the trigger. But anyway, um, my mother was walking up the hill there with Jack, and I was toddling along behind, some distance below, looking at something, I can't remember what. And all of a sudden, I noticed that things had changed. My mother and Jack were standing, staring at a man who had leapt out of, the, out of the, the foliage, obviously thinking of himself as some kind of latter-day Robin Hood, because he was carrying a longbow and a quiver of arrows. And Jack said, excuse me, but this is private property and you shouldn't be here. Would you please leave? The guy's response to that was to pull an arrow out and knock it to the string and point it at them. And Jack immediately stepped in front of my mother to shield her from the arrow. And my mother from behind him said, damn it, Jack, get out of my line of fire. <laughs> so Jack immediately realized there was a shotgun behind him, stepped to one side. The guy found himself staring down what for him must have looked like a, a deadly weapon, um, a three hundred three rifle or something, he probably thought. And he just took off like a, like a, a shot rocket, you know, just off out of the, he ran for his life. And um, I think my mother probably fired a shot into the, into the sky somewhere. <laughs> Well, I've been laughing about that ever since. I inherited that gun, by the way, and, it, and I don't know how. Somehow it got lost in the years, but I actually have a replica of it in my gun cabinet now. Uh, absolutely. But I learned something in that moment, those few moments, about Jack and my mother that I hadn't quite realized, and that is their courage. They both had enormous amounts of courage. Um, mother in her illness knew she was dying. She knew she had very little time. And she made it work for both of their benefits as long and as loud and as laughing as she could. Um, Jack also, of course, had fought in the First World War. And he had been badly injured and, and invalided out. But he stepped in front of my mother to take the arrow. And a lot of husbands would, would fight back, but very few would take an arrow or a shot for their wives. It doesn't happen too often. It does happen sometimes. Um, but Jack just stepped in front of her. And I thought, wow, you know. These two both are the most courageous people I've ever met. And I've tried to balance, to some extent, balance my life on the same kind of ideals. But um, that was just one of the many different things that, that happened in that time. There was another lovely occasion, which is not really lovely, it's kind of horrible, but in some ways it's lovely to me anyway. <laughs> it's just cruel of me and I shouldn't say so. But um, they went to Greece together. Roger Lancelin Green, who has been a pupil of Jack's at college, um, and, and Jack himself had become very good friends. And Roger and his, his lovely wife, June, who just only died a few days ago, a few weeks ago, months ago now, actually, probably almost a year ago. Um, beautiful people. And so they organized a trip to Greece because Jack and mother had always wanted to go to Greece and thought they never would be able to because she was so ill and Jack wasn't very well either. So Roger and his wife organized this trip and they had a fantastic time. It was a wonderful, wonderful trip for them. They'd never been anywhere like it before. They went out on a ship and so forth. And the, well, first they flew out. They didn't go out on a ship. I'm talking of, of a separate situation when it was me who went out on a ship. But anyway, um, no, they flew out, which is something neither of them had ever done before either. And Jack said uh, afterwards that 
after the first shock of the takeoff and looking out of the window, it was a fabulous experience. It was wonderful. Most of us have this first, are we going to crash? Um, is this thing real? You know, feel when we first get an airplane. Um, nowadays, I just go to sleep. But, but, but uh, Jack and my mother said this sort of wonderful, enormous surge of slightly fear, but excitement at the same time. Anyhow, they get there, and they're going from place to place. And June uh, Lancelin Green, Roger's wife, was looking after them beautifully. Somebody would always go ahead when they were getting to a, a, a little restaurant or something and make sure there was a drink for my mother to, to take away some of the pain that she was in. And on this occasion, they were heading up a steep hill to get to some great monument at the top. And about, I suppose, about halfway up, my mother said to Jack, Jack, I'm sorry, I just, I just can't go any further. I, I can't do it. So Jack led her to a fallen column, and they sat down on this big marble fallen column, which you find lying everywhere in Greece, of course. Um, and uh, they sat down to, and Jack lit a cigarette, and they sat and chatted for a while, while my mother sort of recouped a bit. And regrettably, an American lady um, came up the, uh, the path. And she was a, not a very pleasant person, I don't think. But she lifted her nose in the air and said, Ha, you two didn't get very far, did you? <laughs> the only time I ever seen it happen, Jack lost his temper. And he said, oh, go and have a heart attack. <laughs> and the lady walked to the top of the hill and dropped down with the coronary. Just boomf. Jack, had oh. Jack was absolutely horrified. But she came down the hill on a stretcher. And I don't think she was alive. I'm not sure whether she was alive, lived through it or not. But she had a huge heart attack when she got to the top of the hill. Now, I'm not sure whether that was God teaching her a lesson or God <laughs> teaching Jack a lesson, actually. Because for the rest of his life, he hated anyone talking about that incident because he suddenly realized he had brought down an evil curse on another human being. And it ripped him to the core. But my, wow. mother, my mother, on the other hand, when he came back telling me the story <laughs> with Jack present, was laughing her head off. Uh, Jack said, Jack told me that I should never tell anybody about it again. But he'd, he told my mother never to tell anything about it again, but he didn't tell me. <laughs> um, but it's an, it's an illustration, again, of how much the two of them love each, loved each other and how they would go out on these adventures when they were both... By that time, Jack was pretty ill himself, too. I mean, he did, he did extraordinary things. There was a time when I can remember Jack and my mother were sitting together, and my mother was in terrible, terrible um, pain from the pains in her legs from the cancers regrowing. And Jack suddenly started to pray, and he prayed that the Lord would let the pain flow to him so my mother could be without it. And it did. And he was in absolute agony for hours while my mother could get some normal sleep. I mean, things like that were just going on all the time. When I, I just thought this was normal. You know, this is Jack, this is what he does. Looking back, he was heroic, absolutely heroic through the whole business. Eventually, of course, my mother did die. I was at a school called Lapley Grange in, in, in Wales at the time. And um, when it was first thought that she was dying, the headmaster's wife drove me all the way back from the, from the school to Oxford and dropped me off at the front door. And, and um, I went in, my mother went into remission, briefly. So a couple of weeks later, I was called again and told that I had to get back to the kilns. And this time the headmaster drove me all the way up there. Well, they had a, a driver, but he came with me. And I invited him into tea and have a cup of tea. And he said, no, 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 we must leave you. Uh, because my mother had died. And uh, I walked into, I'd seen him not a couple of weeks earlier, 
But I walked into the common room, as we call it, or the sitting room, and Jack was standing there with his, his left arm on the mantelpiece of the fireplace. And he seemed to have aged 10 years in the couple of weeks it was since I'd seen him last. And I just burst into floods of tears, which schoolboys in England aren't supposed to do ever. But I did, and Jack came rushing across and put his arms around me, and we just sat there and cried together. And that was the beginning. No, oh, it was the ending of one thing, but the beginning of something entirely new that was a different form of life altogether, now that my mother was dead. Wow. Well, thanks for sharing that. Well, I didn't, uh, I didn't deliberately set out to live a crazy life, like I said, but this is the way it kind of happened. To a lot of uh, uh, the listeners, obviously, C.S. Lewis is, is very much a hero and has, has brought a lot of people to the Christian faith. I'm curious, from when your time with living him, how did Lewis live out from like the spiritual practices? Because I love hearing how he lived it out in the ways of charity and love and compassion towards people. Um, what were some of the, the spiritual practices, his daily routine with the Christian faith that you saw and witnessed? Well, he read a chapter of the Bible every day. And he read it from a different, usually from a different um, publication. Um, he would read, he, for example, he, I caught him one day reading the, uh, the Gospels in Greek, in ancient Greek. And, and he was doing it aloud. So I said, what the dickens? You know? So I went and asked him what he was doing. He said, oh, I'm just, sorry, Doug, I'm just reading the Bible in ancient Greek. And the idea that anybody would talk ancient Greek, which is sort of just over the top of my head, you know. But... Um, he went, he went on in lots of different directions for a while. Um, one of the things that most importantly happened at that time, and it's important for anyone who listens to this, this talk we're having, is that he wrote his own horrors, his own sadness, his own agony, down in a, in a book, in a little, you know, he always wrote, wrote with, with a pen and ink, and wrote it in a little, actually it was one of my old school textbooks. But... Um, <laughs> No, not, 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 you know, one that I write in, not anybody else writes in. And anyway, Jack was scribbling away at this, and I knew where he, where he put it, I knew what he was writing. And Roger Lanson Green came down to visit, because he was worried about Jack, and very rightfully so. And he came and at dinner that night, um, he said, well, Jack, you know, um, I know Douglas seems to be recovering, but how are you doing? And Jack said, I'm doing what I always do under great extreme situations. I'm writing down what I'm feeling and thinking. And I've just about got everything down on paper, or something like that. And Roger said, well, could I possibly read that? And um, Jack said, yes, of course, and sent me upstairs to get it. I knew where it was kept, I knew where it was. I went up and got it down and brought it. It was all, in, it was actually, as I say, in this textbook sort of thing. And I handed it to Roger, and Roger took it to bed with him that night. The next morning, at breakfast, he said, Jack, you absolutely must publish this. It's going to help so many millions of people all around the world who are dealing with exactly the agony you're dealing with now. You can't, you can't take this away from them. So Jack said, well, all right then, you know, and, and he sort of tidied it up a bit. And then he sent it to his literary agent, Spencer Curtis Brown, and asked Spencer to make sure that it went to a publisher they had never used before and under a pseudonym which he'd, he'd come up with, something in Greek or Latin or something, I can't remember what it was, the first one. So it was sent off to um, Faber and Faber. And on the, <laughs> on the board of Faber and Faber at the time, and one of the people who, who read the books that came in, was T.S. Eliot. 
Now, T.S. Eliot and Jack had become very good friends since the Archbishop of Canterbury had elected both of them to help to rewrite the, uh, the New Testament bits of, I think, it was, no, it was the Psalms, something like that. Anyway, I'm not really remembering that. But it was something in the Bible, it was either the Psalms or something like that. Anyway, I think it might have been the Psalms. Rewrite or re-establish re, re the Psalms in better, in better language. And um, so the interesting thing about it was that Jack couldn't stand Eliot's poetry. But they had become good friends anyway. <laughs> and um, so Eliot read, read this thing and he, he went back to Spencer. He said, look, uh, Spencer, I, I have to tell you, we absolutely must publish this. But I would like you to suggest to the author, whom I'm absolutely sure I've identified in my mind, um, that he, he come up with a, a better and less obvious pseudonym. Because everybody in Oxford would immediately know who wrote this with that one, the last one, which is something in Greek or something. I can never remember the first one. Um, so they, Spencer sent it back to Jack with this suggestion. And uh, so Jack re, re, fabric, re came up with a new pseudonym, which was N.W. Clark, which is Anglo-Saxon Nat Wilk Clark, meaning nobody knows the writer. But the real funny side of this, I've always found it funny anyway, was that it went out in publication and in places like, uh, you know, Blackwell's in Oxford, the huge book bookstore. Friends of Jack's would turn up and they'd pick this new book by some new unknown writer off the shelf and start reading it. And they'd think, oh, this would help Jack. And they would buy a copy and send it to him. We, <laughs> we had copies of the darn thing all over the house. <laughs> it was, I mean, there must have been 15, 20 copies in the house by the time it was finished. Um, and Jack, even Jack started to laugh about it. Um, to this day, in fact, just the other day, I bought another six copies because I give them to people I know need them. And I know that if I hadn't read that particular book, it would be a lot worse. Yeah, a grief observed. And it was N.W. Clark was the second name that Jack put on it. So anyway, um, the book has, in fact, taken off around the world and it has helped millions and millions of people stagger through the same agony. Uh, mm. So that, I mean, he was... He was suffering enormously, but was very easily persuaded to help other people get through it too. And that, again, is the courage of the man. When I finally went to hospital to visit him when he was ill, and I didn't even know, I didn't even know he was badly ill. I just thought there was something, you know, he might have a cold or something and be in the hospital. Um, I went to visit him and he uh, looked me up and said, oh, hello, Doug, how are you? And we chatted for a while. And he said, oh, hadn't you better be going down to the railway station? And I said, what for? He said, well, to collect the au pair. Now, an au pair is a girl, probably in her late teens, who is coming across to England to learn to speak English and will do it by staying with an English family and helping them and they'll get a little pocket money. And, you know, so uh, to, to go and pick up the au pair. And I said, what au pair? And he said, oh, there's an au pair girl coming from France to stay with us in the kilns to help Mrs. Miller in the, in the kitchen. And I said, oh, okay. Um, he said, yes, you have to go down and pick her up uh, with a taxi or something and, and take her up the kilns. He won't know how to get there. So I said, well, can I have some money to pay the cab? And he said, oh, um, I don't have any. You see if you can get some from the matron of the hospital. So I went down to the matron of the hospital and I said, well, look, I've got the, my, my stepfather just told me I have to go and get out to the railway station to collect someone. Um, can you lend me and put on our bill some, some, some cash? So she did. Uh, she wasn't happy about it, but she did. And then I went back to Jack and said, all right, Jack, I've got the money for the cab and I'll be off now to go and, uh, go and do what you said. And he said, what? What did I say? I said, well, you told me I had to go down to the railway station to collect an au pair who's coming from France to help Mrs. Miller in the, in the kitchen. He said, Doug, now even my mind is deserting me. Mm. There's no such thing happening. 
It was a complete fabrication of my mind, which I wasn't even aware of. And he laughed. Again, enormous courage. Enormous courage of him being able to laugh at what was happening to his brain, his mind. And I went back to the... To the <laughs> by the time I got back there, there was a cabbie, a female cabbie, waiting for me to take me down to the, to the railway station. And she was what I would describe as a fairly concrete individual. In other words, she was hard as nails. And she insisted that I pay her lots of money, and I didn't have lots of money. And, I quite, and eventually the matron of the hospital came out and told her to clear off, which she did. And I had given her about a, you know, five or ten shillings or something. As I walked out of that hospital at that time, I realized that this was serious, that, that Jack probably wasn't going to make it. And as I walked out, someone else approached me, whom I vaguely remembered. And uh, he said, um, Douglas, you won't remember me, but I'm uh, Professor Tolkien. Mm. And I said, oh, I know, I know exactly who you are. I've seen you, if you remember. We, I've been to a couple of Inklings meetings, and I got, got to know what you look like. What can I do for you? And he said, no, 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 no. It's what I can do for you if necessary. If anything untoward happens to Jack and you need somewhere to live, you will come and live with me. And I've never forgotten that. He was a f anyway, um, as it happened, uh, my guardian, who my mother had appointed as my guardian, Jean Wakeman, a motoring journalist, who was a dear friend of my mother's, had already set up the fact that if anything happened to Jack, she would have a place for me in her house, which is where I eventually went. But I was deeply moved that Tolkien would, would just offer me his home to live in like that. Beautiful, beautiful man. Anyway, I uh, uh, went home and went back to school. And recently, a short time afterwards, Jack died, and I, I had to come back to the funeral. Inter mm. An interesting funeral, actually. Again, I was in the same churchyard as I had the other experiences. Was it really? Yeah. He was, he was buried. And later on, so was my Uncle Warnie, in the same grave. But the strangest thing was that the, the coffin was in the church on trestle things, you know, and there was one tall candle in a candlestick on top of the coffin. And the, it was about two inches of flame at the top of it. And the flame burnt brightly, really brightly, and never ever fluttered or wavered or moved at all. And I thought nothing about it at the time. But then when it became time to lower the coffin into the, into the uh, grave, and it was being carried out, someone had taken the, the candle off, and I didn't see who'd done it, but they carried it back. And then when it was ready, the coffin was laid on the, on the blocks, you know, you put across the top of the coffin, uh, top of the grave, and someone had put the, ca the, the candle back there. And it was a day so still, the candle did not move a millimeter. The flame did not move a millimeter. And finally, the candle was taken away and Jack was buried. Now, when I, I wrote about that in Lenten Lands, and I got, not angry, but sort of, well, one was fairly angry. People wrote to me and said, look, that's absolute rubbish. There was no candle on that, on that coffin except, as it happened, the nuns who had been there who wrote to me and say, I'm so glad you saw that, ca that candle. We didn't know whether we were seeing things or not. And the truth of the matter is that it turns out m many people in that, at that graveyard, at that funeral, did not see the, the, ca the, the candle, and the others of us did. And I think that the people who saw the candle were being given something extra. Wow. <laughs> well, as I say, I didn't set out to live a crazy life. <laughs> yeah, that's, in, that's incredible. I mean, got to remember, I, I lost my father to divorce to begin with. And then a short while later, I lost my mother to cancer. 
short while after that, I lost my father, lost my father to suicide because of a cancer. And a little while after that, about 18 months after that, I lost my stepfather. So it was a pretty rugged life up till then. And I had already, by that stage, decided to go and um, become a farmer and wound up at Chargat Manor and found the woman I was going to marry. So it sort of evens out in a way. I've still done a whole lot of crazy things and been in a whole lot of crazy places. Yep. I was a radio and broadcaster and television worker and all that sort of thing for years. But I've done a, a, almost num huge lots of things in, in the world that I did because I was interested. I think that's probably why I've led the weird life I have, because I'm interested in things. And I'm interested in people. I think people are important. And you've lived that out very well by being interested in people, because you and your wife lived in Ireland and started an abortion ministry. Can you speak to that? Well, I, I wouldn't quite put it like that. That sounds if like we're sort of ministering to abortions. But we're, yeah. <laughs> in fact, it's kind of the opposite. Yeah, we, yes. did, we, we ran a, a Christian psychotherapy and counseling ministry, which we both trained for in Ireland for 13 years. And in the end, we got out, out of the, the, the ministry because it, we were just too exhausted to go on. And I think also that God wanted us to move to somewhere else, which is why we're now in, on the island of Malta. But, um, yeah, we did that for quite a long time. And we have probably up two or 3,000, I guess two or 3,000 people over the years probably came to us. And it wasn't, just, it wasn't just about abortion. It was about basically things that had happened to them in their childhoods which had ruined their adulthood. And we tried to teach them to overcome that, and most of them did, thank God. Um, and there's one who, who still emails me every single couple of days, and she's a lovely person, and I'm very, very f fond of her, and very glad that she does come back and email me, you know? And when we were in North Carolina, sitting in the porch that night, you told us a story about one particular girl in a ring. It was quite moving. Would you mind sharing that with our listeners? Oh, that, yes, that, I, that's, that's slightly different, but it, it, it was much later... No, sorry, it was earlier. Okay. It was earlier than, than running the ministry because we hadn't bought the house at that stage when I think back of it. But the, the physician, the doctor who had, who had wanted us to, to, uh, to help him put, a, to put some people in a place where they could be taught, um, we, we had already decided we are going to build this, buy this house and restore it, which we did. But he actually invited me to come to Canada and asked me if I would speak to a lot of people while I was there. And I said, well, as long as they don't throw anything very hard, I will, you know. Um, and so I went over there, and he said, look, there's one young lady whom we're really worried about, and I'm just wondering if you could just go and cheer her up a bit to see if she can make up her mind exactly what she wants to do with her baby in utero. And I was talking to this girl, whom I got to like quite quickly after, a, you know, 10 or 15 minutes or maybe half an hour of talking. And she saw a ring. Actually, can you see this ring? I can. You can? Oh, it's two dolphins crossing each other of gold. Yeah. And I was wearing one of these, which was, which was made by a friend of mine in Australia. And um, she said, uh, uh, after we'd finished talking about serious stuff, we got down to just chatting a bit, just sort of lighten the mahogany, if you know what I mean. Um, she said, that's a beautiful ring you're wearing. And I did something that came straight from God. I had no intention of doing so. I took the ring off and I handed it to her. And I said, give this to your daughter when she's old enough to wear it. I had no idea what the sex of that child was going to be. That girl is now 22 or 23, I think, and she wears that ring every single day mm. in Canada. And I've never met her, but we email each other all the time. Wow. Oh, well, the first time I heard down the porch, it just brought tears to my eyes. 
Christianity is not a matter of reading the Bible every day. It helps, but it's not, that's not Christianity. That's, infl- that's trying to learn more about Christianity, but it isn't Christianity. Christianity yeah. is waiting until the Lord puts something in front of you and says, fix it. And you do whatever you can to fix it. And I only bought this when I was back in Australia the other day from the guy who started making them 30 years ago. And this girl still wears the one that I gave her mother this day. Wow. Christianity is doing for Christ what you know he wants you to do, even if it's scary. You know? And I want to be conscious of your time here. Um, and so um, on that note, I'd, if, if, if you're willing to, I, I know in the, the end of Lenten Lands, you mentioned how you, because you live out your Christian faith so well, and I could even just hear it here, and I know the listeners are, and I love just hearing wait, your wait, love wait, when you wait, talk wait, about love for wait, people. Wait, wait, stop, stop. It's not me living out my Christian faith. Yeah. It's Jesus working through mm. me. Just that. I'm not, very, that. I'm not very good at it, but with Jesus helping, yeah. it becomes amazing. And, and, that's, and, you, and you put in Lenten lands, there was a point in your life where you believed in Christ and God, but there was a point where you surrendered to the authority of that. Yeah. Exactly. That's what you have to do. And you have to remember that, as somebody very clever once said, any day that the Lord allows you to open your eyes is a day when he wants you to do something for him. Don't quote me on that because it's not my saying. It's somebody else's. But I think it's absolutely right. You wake up in the morning and get up, look around and see what the Lord wants you to do because he wants you to do something. And didn't you say in an interview once, Lewis said it's the interruptions because he would always get interrupted that are the, uh, when God's really working? Yeah, well, that's when God's really working, but it can be. You have to be aware of it a bit because it can be when the devil's trying to stop you. Yes. You've got to be aware of that too. So as we wrap up here, what's your involvement with the Lewis, let's call it estate, works, Narnia books, movies? What's your involvement with that? Well, um, uh, what I'm mostly doing is, is um, answering questions that people ask me about Jack or about the, 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 the Chronicles of Narnia. And by the way, I've made an awful lot of friends from schoolgirls or schoolboys at the time who wrote to me about, about the Narnia Chronicles, and I wrote back. Because one of the things that Jack taught me when I was quite young was that you always answer a letter or any kind of thing that people send you because they might need it. They might need what you have to say. So I do that, and I do read, write an awful lot of, of letters uh, by email, of course. But um, I'm semi-retired in a sense. I am, after all, 74 years old, and I haven't really had a chance to drive any race cars lately. <laughs> I thought, I better get that done before I get too old, you know? No, anyway, I, I, I'm basically um, a consultant, I guess would be the best way to put it, to all things Narnia, to all of the, uh, the, the, the publishers and people like that, and to an awful lot of students, young people, who want to know more about Jack or more about Narnia. And I'm never reluctant to talk about him. He's a person, I mean, he was, he was given a, a poet's corner stone in, in uh, the Abbey in England. Um, he's revered all over the world by mostly middle-aged and older people. I would like the younger people to understand what a great hero he was and what a great heroine my, my mother was too. Well, that's why we're so grateful for you being able to come on here because we have a very young, in the podcast, like demographic, and we're trying to get this because David and I, I'm 29. Um, he's a little bit older, but we absolutely fell in love with Lewis. I did I, while I was studying at Oxford and never made it to Kilns while I was there because I didn't realize the impact he was going to have until after I left. And I was supposed to get back there in August, but the COVID unfortunately stopped it. So yeah, yeah. 
That's what, that's, that's what marooned me in, in Australia for six, <laughs> six months. <laughs> but no, it's, 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 it's something that we really want to do is to just keep this going with the, the next generation because he is such a profound um, writer and just spreads Christianity so beautifully in his life. And so that's why we're so grateful, too, to be able to hear from you on this. Well, I think it, I'm, I'm completely biased, totally biased. I've read all sorts of books by all sorts of people about Christianity. Nothing comes close to Jack's works. Yep. For me, anyway. Douglas, thank you absolutely so much from the bottom of my heart and for all the listeners. Um, this has been absolutely incredible. And so we just can't say thank you enough for, for being on here and joining us and sharing so much of, of your life and uh, also C.S. Lewis's life. Well, you're very welcome. And everybody who listens to this is very welcome, too.